a podcast one production. I got an email the other day from a nurse who saw one of my segments on the Today Show. She told me that she saw me talking and she thought she could see a small lump under my neck, just next to my thyroid. Of course, this has sent me into a spin because six months ago, I came off medication for a thyroid condition that was discovered when I was pregnant with baby number two. Now, I haven't had it checked out for about six months and now I'm quite worried that my poor thyroid is in trouble. I mean, I've got no symptoms and maybe it's just a lumpy neck or maybe it's something serious. It just feels like ever since having babies, my hormones have never quite recovered. And now I've got one more reason to wake up stressing at 3am. This is Healthy Her with Amelia Phillips. Two of the big issues us mums struggle with is weight and our hormones after kids. Endocrine disrupting chemicals or EDCs are everywhere and play a big part in disrupting hormones and weight. They're in plastics, pesticides, sunscreens, pans, tap water, fluoride, and even in our cosmetics. And they've been linked with diseases such as hypothyroidism, type 2 diabetes, Graves, Cushing's, endometriosis, and polycystic ovarian syndrome. So how do EDCs affect our health, hormones, and weight? How accurate are the tests and what are the top tips to reducing the amount of EDCs in our life with the least amount of hassle? Joining me to discuss this is Professor Catherine Samaris, endocrinologist and clinical researcher with over 140 publications plus a TEDx talk under her belt. She is so well respected that her portrait was painted by artist Sinead Davies and made it into the 2019 Archibald Finals. Wow. Dr. Catherine, thank you for joining me today. It's my privilege, Amelia. Thank you. Now, before we get on to EDCs, can you please explain what our endocrine system does? Our endocrine system is a very, very complicated system of hormones that basically think of them as NASA central control. They control every aspect of body function from how quickly our heart is beating to how quickly our hair grows to our cycling through the month. So whether we're going to be fertile this month or not, it affects aging processes. It affects puberty. It affects us from the minute we are born to the minute we die. For example, bones, the adrenal glands, our thyroid, our ovaries, and master of all of these hormonal systems is the pituitary gland, which sits in our brain, and it has kind of like master control of all of these systems, and it has a coordinating role. So think of it as, as kind of like we have our own solar system in our body. The sun is the pituitary, and everything else whizzes around. But just like the sun influences it provides sun and light and energy, and it has a huge gravitational force. The pituitary gland governs all of our functions. And we spin around, and sometimes things happen and we get out of kilter and we go off our orbit a bit, and things aren't right until we come back into orbit. Oh, I love that way of describing it, the little sun <laughs> in our pituitary gland. So... I mentioned some of the most common endocrine disorders before, and I'm sure for the mums listening, you may either have one of these or you would definitely know someone that has one of these, hypothyroidism, type 2 diabetes, Graves, Cushing's, endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome. Catherine, what are the main causes of these endocrine disorders? 
a lot of the time it's our genes. For example, let's say diabetes and obesity. We tend to think of them as lifestyle disorders, but you've got to have the genetic predisposition. And there's no special tests. Just look at mum and dad or grandparents and you know what your destiny might be in that regard. So diabetes, for example, very, very much genetic. And then you have to do the lifestyle things, put on the weight and it comes. For the underactive thyroid, the hypothyroidism, again, that's genetic. For most people, one has a predisposition to autoimmunity where the immune system will go on attack and destroy different things. Most commonly, that will be the thyroid in women. And this attack can be going on very, very quietly so that no one has an idea it's happening. Very occasionally, people get pain in the thyroid, in the neck, but it can gradually just evolve. So Again, that autoimmune attack, which is underlying a number of other endocrine conditions like type 1 diabetes, for example, that autoimmunity is determined by our genes and then there'll be some environmental factor that comes in and knocks it off. Very rarely in Australia, but this would be reasonable in the Riverina districts and in Tasmania where there's very little iodine in the soil. Iodine deficiency can play a role in enlargement of the thyroid gland, which is the term goiter and underactivity. But most of us know that we should be using iodized salts and we only need tiny little amounts and that's enough. So genes and environment will play a big role. Okay, and when you're talking about environment, are we talking about lifestyle as well? Is that part of it? Because anecdotally, I feel like the prevalence of endocrine disorders has increased over the years? Is it just because we're getting better at diagnosing it or is it actually on the rise? It is very much on the rise. The data show the numbers are increasing. We tend to think of lifestyle as what we put on our plate, our sleep, how much we exercise. But I think we also need to consider a number of other factors when we start talking about lifestyle. And they are lots of other choices that we make that you might not think are so important. And our hormones very, very much fit into that, whether it's our adrenal glands making stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, whether it's our ovaries making hormones that make us ovulate and open up the possibilities of conception, whether we're going to put on weight or not. And why do you think the prevalence of endocrine disorders has increased? I think it's very much lifestyle. Our genes haven't changed in millennia. So it's very much our environment has changed. We've engineered physical activity out of daily living. We can survive by just pressing buttons and, hey, presto, meals will appear. We haven't had to hunt and gather to get that food onto the table. We're sleeping less and less, and this is really detrimental. We're exposed to different forms of radiation. That's certainly detrimental. And then there are things in our environment, and they start with what we might elect to put on our plate every day, but it also may be influenced by how we choose to cook it, what we may choose to cook it in, what we put onto the table. How did that come to us? Did it come in plastic, for example, or did we open the tap or did it come in glass? There are other factors, obviously, that might come in food. So there I'm specifically referring to the endocrine disruptor chemicals or EDCs, which are everywhere in our community. And of course, we'll all have exposure. But my view is that limiting the exposure actually improves health across a number of domains, whether it's our metabolism, our various hormones, 
um, whether we put on weight. And there is even some data suggesting that they may hold some cancer risks. So they're, they're really important things to be aware of just because we have so much choice. And I want to delve into EDCs in a moment, but for the mums listening, how would they know if they were having a hormonal issue or an endocrine disorder? What are the early symptoms? Yeah, look, it's very easy in just a normal woman's life, especially when she has children that might be young or adolescent children, to put down the symptoms that you think that are just vague symptoms like fatigue, tiredness, to the 100 things that women do every day to care for their families. But tiredness, fatigue is the most prevalent symptom that something might not be right. And it may be thyroid, it may be blood sugars are creeping up. We can feel really tired even before we develop diabetes. And we know that diabetes may take 10 years to develop. But in that what we call prodrome or that pre-diabetic period, There can be symptoms like just feeling lethargic and tired. There might be some thrush, for example, as well, Um, just not having energy. So I know in my life and in many, many women's lives, there are so many things that can make you feel like you're lacklustre, you're not interested in things, the libido may not be brilliant. So there may be all of just these subtle things that we so easily attribute to the 101 things that a woman does that may actually be an endocrine problem. So at what point would you go and see a doctor about that? Look, I think, I think women with children should see their doctor once a year for a good checkup. And that would include a physical examination, so a check on weight, a check on blood pressure, looking at skin perhaps, plus also some blood tests. And in those blood tests, my view is that there should be a check on kidney function, liver function, thyroid function, a blood sugar I think these sorts of things are are critical. If one's having heavy periods, to check on iron levels. If one is a vegetarian, to check on iron and B12 levels. So there are these sorts of things that, that should be checked annually. And then if there are additional symptoms like fatigue, there are some things that one can drill down and look for. Let's touch on weight gain because it's really interesting with weight gain. It can be both a symptom and a cause of an endocrine disorder. So here's how the cycle works. We have our baby and we don't quite lose all the baby weight and we're carrying a bit of extra weight around. And then we have our second baby and we don't quite lose that baby weight. So now we're carrying an extra 5, 10, 15, 20 kilos around. Suddenly we find ourselves with an endocrine disorder. Now it's a chicken or an egg. We don't know did one cause the other. But what I'd like to ask you is when a patient comes to you and they are overweight and they have an endocrine disorder and they manage to lose that weight back into a healthy weight range, do you see an improvement in those endocrine disorders? Amelia, you ask a fantastic question and it's an area that I've been researching for 10 years. Um, Carrying extra weight causes systemic inflammation. So this is fat tissue releases all of these chemical hormones into the circulation that basically can erode, eat up, destroy tissues. They contribute to joint inflammation and arthritis 10, 15, 30 years down the track. They contribute to atherosclerosis, so hardening of the arteries. They contribute to inflammation in the pancreas, which increases the risk of developing diabetes. So these inflammatory cytokines also rev up the immune system hugely in such a way that it can go on attack more. So if there is any underlying autoimmunity, that gets exaggerated 
and it's accelerated. So that weight in itself can definitely accelerate hormonal problems for the future. Carrying the extra weight also can contribute to polycystic ovary syndrome. And for people who don't know what that is, it's where people can start to have irregular menstrual cycles, start to grow a little bit of facial hair, even get a little bit of acne. So some women, when they're carrying the extra weight, even when they're in their 30s, can start having pimples again and start getting, you know, acne. And that is a signal that, you know, something is really awry there. So the weight has a fundamental role in determining whether you are going to live into a healthy 80, 90-year-old and be bouncing their great-grandchildren on your lap um, and, and being able to chase them and participate in, you know, all aspects of their care and lives or whether at, in one's 60s and 70s one's starting to have what we call diseases associated with ageing. So I want to caveat all this by saying something interesting because pretty much six out of the 10 mums that are listening right now will be overweight or obese because 64% of society is. What's interesting is I had an endocrine disorder, might still have it according to the nurse, (laughs) and I have a BMI of 19 and I've never been overweight before, yet I still have this endocrine disorder. So I do want to say to the mums out there, it it doesn't just discriminate on people carrying a bit of extra weight. It can happen to anyone, can't it? Correct. And, you know, there are very, very lean people like you who will have autoimmunity. But if you were to put on five to 10 kilos, I guarantee you it would get worse. Right. So when you do have a patient that is able to lose the weight, do you see an improvement? You do. Which is wonderful. And, and where I think that is most obvious is in polycystic ovary syndrome. You also see it in the two types of diabetes, um, in Cushing syndrome, obviously, you know, where weight is such a big factor. Um, so the weight is really important. So just like we check blood pressure and make sure that that's perfect, we should be really conscious about weight. You know, something that really rings a very strong memory for me from my 12 WBT days, so when we were, you know, helping thousands of women and men lose weight was the amount of feedback that we got from members who said, I've had an endocrine disorder for many years and I attributed my stubborn weight gain and and difficulty in losing weight to this endocrine disorder. But as soon as I got my calories under control and exercised more, the weight fell off me. And I always find that really encouraging. And I think it's really good to know that even if you do have an endocrine disorder, the weight still can come off you. And sometimes it is just a matter of really focusing on how many calories are you actually consuming in a day and how many are you burning. And calories get a bad rap at the moment. There's a lot of talk about, you know, people don't like counting calories. But if you have an endocrine disorder, would you agree with me that doing whatever you can to monitor that calorie intake, whichever, you know, diet you want to follow is really important? I completely agree with you, Amelia. You know, what I would say to those, uh, you know, don't count, count your calories, I would say, how do you manage your finances? Don't you want to know how many dollars you have in the bank before you go on a big spend? And I think it's it's that kind of honesty. Look, trying to diet, trying to count calories is tough. Nobody, Nobody would say that it isn't. But it's fundamental. And if one isn't doing that, um, you're kind of waiting for a magic wand. And I wish there was one, but there isn't. And I know there'd be a lot of people listening thinking, well, diets don't work anyway. 
So I guess the message I'm trying to give is that we need to focus on finding a sustainable eating regime that works for us, that is just the correct amount of food we should eat every day, which is usually between that 1,200 to 2,000 calories a day, depending on age, weight, height and activity level. That is not a diet. It's just sensible eating. And to your point, Catherine, about finances, it's the same message, isn't it? Just like we aim to spend less money than we make, we should aim to consume the same or fewer calories than we burn off each day. Correct. So to lose weight and to keep it off, you have to eat fewer calories most days of your life, now, in the future, forever. Otherwise, if you've been overweight, the minute the calories start creeping up, and I don't care if they are carbohydrate calories, protein calories, fat calories, foods grown by Vestal Virgins by the phase of the moon calories. Your butt doesn't differentiate. Your butt does not differentiate. And if you've lost weight, I mean, everybody who's lost weight will know how hard it is. And that one little slip and suddenly there's extra two kilos on the scales. So it is about calories. Calories seem like the demon to so many people, but the evidence from studies shows that the people that lose weight and keep it off, it doesn't matter what style of eating they're doing, they're eating fewer calories now and for the future. So whether you're doing keto diet, intermittent fasting, meal replacements, the overarching reason why they are working is because you are consuming fewer calories. But the method by which you choose to consume fewer calories is kind of up for debate and up to you to follow what fits in with your lifestyle. I would agree with you, Amelia, and I think just doing that whole thing of being cognizant of how many calories, knowing what you're eating, then I think it makes the decision-making a lot easier. talk about endocrine disrupting chemicals or EDCs. They can be found in food, in personal care products, cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, pesticides, plastics, flame retardants, water and soil. Oh my goodness, it's overwhelming to think about it. It can be such a daunting job trying to reduce exposure. In your mind, what are the worst culprits that we should be focusing on first? Look, I think we're talking about women with children. So, Let's, let's look at the plastic bottles we're carrying around to carry our water because, of course, none of us would like to drink soft drinks or carbonated drinks except on very, very special occasions, maybe a couple of times per year. But a lot of these products that are the hard plastics will contain BPAs, BPBs, and they, that stands for bisphenol A, bisphenol B. And these harden plastic. And they also get into whatever is in the plastic. So we know, for example, with water, bottled water, the plastic bottled water, it takes often two years to come from the spring source to the consumer. There will be levels measurable in that product before people drink it. And then after people drink that water, there will be measurable levels of these BPAs in their blood and in their urine. So they they come through our body and they're filtered out, but they also have effects in the body. So that's just plastic bottles. I think also when you are out in the supermarket buying products, what one should look for is that it's a BPA-free bottle 
or that it's not in plastic at all, or um, with canned things, like if you're using canned legumes, canned beans, canned tuna, a lot of there's the lining of those cans contain bisphenol A as well. But a lot of companies have, have come to the party and, and are not lining their cans with um, BPA. So it starts in the supermarket. And if you thought just looking at the back of packets um, to find out what the calorie counts were and what were the ingredients in certain things, it gets a little bit harder because now you have to add this extra layer of is there BPA in this and is it going to be in the food? And I think that that's really a very important start. And then the food comes home, right? And then we're going to cook it. But what are we going to cook it in? So we know that a lot of those nonstick frying pans have got EDCs in that lining. The Teflon? Yes. Right. Yep. So those nonstick frying pans. The actual product is called, it's, it's a PFAS so we've, we know, we've heard about PFASs from the fire retardants that have been used and have leached into the environment. But you also get this in nonstick frying pans. So do you really need to have a nonstick frying pan? Would you not be better off to use a tiny little bit of olive oil and fry things appropriately if you are going to fry at all? A lot of other standard cooking pans that don't have that lining are fine. But again, you know, when we love our frying pans and think, oh, this is, you know, how will I do without my frying pan? We'll think about how you might be able to cook. How did your mother cook? Because these things weren't around, you know, 30 years ago. They certainly weren't around in my grandmother's day. It can be really overwhelming for a mum to look at the environment around her and just see, you know, poison after poison after poison. And I like to think of like the rungs on a ladder where you slowly work your way up the, you know, purity or detoxification and all the mums listening will be on a different journey. There'll be some mums here right now that haven't had plastic in their house for years and they'll be scratching their heads going, why would anyone have plastic? And then there are other mums like me who still send their kids to school with a plastic bottle and I'm a bit late to the party. So the bottom running of the ladder you're saying is plastic bottles and plastics. Yes, I would start there. So if you were looking at trying to get these out of your household, yes, I would, I would certainly not be buying things in plastic bottles. Okay. I would be renovating my children's plastic bottles for school. Okay. And I would get rid of plastic food containers. Like when I cook, I cook batches. I cook big things. Yes, I encourage that. And so I I use glass to store these foods in the fridge rather than using those plastic containers. What about the plastic lunch boxes? So the bento boxes, which I love because you now don't have to wrap your kids' lunches in Glad Wrap because they're in these compartmentalised bento boxes, which are a really hard plastic. Yeah. And they're only sitting in there for a couple of hours, right? Are they okay? They, they should be fine because it's such short time in that. What you don't want to do is put those plastics in the microwave and heat them up. Right, Got it. Because then those chemicals will actually get into the food. But, you know, if you've got a sandwich or fruit or vegetable pieces or some cooked food sitting in one of those lunch boxes, because it's only sitting there for three or four hours, that's that's absolutely fine. I wouldn't sweat that one. Okay, so mums that are listening, our first step is the plastics. So then we spoke about the non-stick fry pans is another, you know, fast way to reduce our exposure. What would some other rungs on the ladder be? So... Mums never get to put hand cream on. They never get to moisturise their legs, let alone their poor little feet. And we tend to think of it as a great luxury. But the skin is a huge organ that can absorb so much chemical, so much substance. And a lot of fragranced items will contain another EDC called the phthalates. 
And so the phthalates are, again, the, the reason why they're not great is that they're estrogen receptor stimulators. So these, these things come in a lot of the lotions and potions that we rub onto our body. And so we have to kind of look at that and try and get something that is, you know, really very, very natural. That's my policy. Now, it is important to recognise that lavender is also the fragrance in it can be an EDC. Oh, I love lavender. I wouldn't go rubbing large amounts of lavender over our, our, our young children, though. Right. So are you talking about the essential oil lavender or the, you know, chemical scent of lavender? So even the essential oil. So use the essential oil as it should be, a dot on the wrist. Yes. A dot at the temple. Because it's a, a sleep spray. aid. Exactly. A lot of us mums will, will put a few dots on our kids' pillows to help them sleep exactly. better. Exactly. So a spray on the pillow, absolutely fine. But there are other products and, and, and women get terribly enthusiastic and they'll rub these these um, oils and other things on their, yeah, their children. Uh, I wouldn't. All right. So I'm hearing these rungs of the ladder and I think that's the real take home here is that we're not going to go home and just turn our house inside out because it's not sustainable and, you know, it's just all too overwhelming. So you start with the biggest culprits first and then you slowly work your way through. And, you know, there are some quick wins. For example, there are some beautiful skincare products out there now that are natural. They will clearly call them out. No sulfates, no phthalates. And so trying to focus on those, I think, is quite a quick win as well. Absolutely. When it comes to measuring EDCs in our body, I've heard that there are some alternate tests you can get done, whether it's urine samples or hair analysis. I actually got a urine sample done to test for EDCs in my body because I was so worried about it. What are your thoughts on these newer tests coming through? So in research, when there's environmental science and we're looking at people's exposures, there are very, very standardised tests that are performed and they are done on urine, they can be done on, on hair and they can be done on blood. The challenge I think that's out there for people who are ordering these tests is validation, which means how right are their cutoffs? What is the evidence that those cutoffs are based on? Do those cutoffs, red zones, for example, that are red flags or warnings, what's the evidence of harm there? And we don't have that evidence yet. So before one goes out and spends a lot of money, perhaps on some of these tests, and if you've got lots of money, yeah, sure, that's no issue. But if you don't, I think that might be wasted money and actually create anxieties around things that you can actually be more empowered to fix by just looking in your kitchen and looking at the way you might prepare food and what you're putting on your body. And as an endocrinologist, you don't go and get those tests to work out why a patient might have an endocrine disorder. What I might do with thyroid is I'll check their urine for iodine, just in case they're on a no-salt diet or the salt that they are consuming might be some of the fashionable pink salts that come from Tibet that have absolutely no iodine in them. And so, of course, iodine deficiency can produce thyroid hormones. And it is important to find those people because the fix is so easy. And that's just adding a bit of iodized salt. So that would be the one thing that I think is really worth measuring if there's a thyroid problem and, and you're avoiding salt. As a mum, I watch my young kids practically eat their toothpaste when they brush their teeth. Oh, my four young kids, it does my head in. I think more toothpaste gets on their tongue and behind it than it does on the teeth. I actually have a girlfriend who told me her toddler ate an entire tube of toothpaste because, you know, it has that taste to it. What are your thoughts on fluoride 
as an EDC, should we be brushing our teeth with fluoride in our children's or not? Yeah, so fluoride isn't an EDC. And we know from studies that if you don't have access to fluorinated water, then your teeth are going to decay much more rapidly. One doesn't want to have toxicity though. So it's like a lot of things in life. A little bit is good for you and a lot is actually detrimental. So for those kids with reach that get up and eat the toothpaste, I'd be putting the the toothpaste way up high and one may even want to um, just be putting the toothpaste on their brush just to make sure they're not consuming the whole thing because it's not the fluoride that is in the toothpaste that I would be worried about. There's lots of other things in the toothpaste that I would be more worried about. So on the rungs of the ladder... Toothpaste, fluoride, we're not worrying too much about that. But don't let them overconsume it. Okay. And what about filtered water versus tap water? Yeah, look, I'm a great fan of unfiltered water. One of my great research interests is actually the microbiome. And so I do think you should have access to all sorts of germs. You know, it is actually a reasonable thing to have those other things in the water. And again, if you're filtering the water, you're at risk of getting iodine deficiency because the iodine will be filtered out. So I, I'm a great fan. Now, if you happen to have really cruddy, 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 cruddy pipes, you know, some, some houses have iron pipes, then I wouldn't be happy necessarily with that water. But if you've got normal pipes and they're, they're you know, good copper pipes, then you're not going to get a lot of things that are going to be harmful to health. So I would certainly not be investing in um, a water filter. I think that money can be spent elsewhere. Let's talk sunscreen. There are two major types of active ingredients in sunscreens. There's organic chemical filters and inorganic metal oxides like zinc and titanium dioxide. Which should we be choosing? Ah, sunscreen, sunscreen. So back to the skin. We absorb so much from this huge organ called skin. So anything you put on your skin, there's going to be absorption. So the way I'll answer that is by telling you what I did with my kids. So we would go swimming early, early in the morning. So, you know, crack of dawn, up we get. We're down to the beach by, you know, 8.30, 9 o'clock. They're off the beach by 10.30. Um, or we would go again at 5 or 6, you know, especially in the, in the peak of summer where there's an extra hour of daylight at that end. And at that time, I wouldn't put sunscreen on them at all. Um, if they were out and about in the other times, they wear a big hat and rash shirts. And the thing about rash shirts is that they do perish and when they start to lose their elasticity, they're going to start losing their, their ability to screen. So you may not get more than one season out of your, your rash shirt. Then when it comes to, you know, these other compounds, so some of those compounds, the organic filters that you measured, will be endocrine disruptor chemicals. So, you know, that I think is a little bit of a challenge. Like, what do we choose? And then, you know, titanium can be a carcinogen. What on earth do we choose to put on our kids? So when it came to looking at all of those things, I mean, I will use sunscreen sparingly. I'll use the highest filter that I can get, but I won't be in the sun in those times. Okay, so your recommendation there is basically as much as possible, you know, use the other slip, slop, slap recommendations of staying out of the sun, hats, covering up. When it comes to sunscreen use, you actually don't think there's necessarily a difference between the chemical ones that absorb into the skin versus the topical ones like the dioxides that sit on top of the skin. I don't mind zinc. Okay. titanium, I still have an issue with right. just because of the evidence around it being a carcinogen. A carcinogen is something that can potentially induce cancer. And what about for mums? I don't wear sunscreen on my body unless I'm literally going to the beach, but I put a 50 on my face every single day. I'd wear a hat. <laughs> <laughs> 
And if I was going to wear it, I would look for a zinc dioxide rather than the titanium or the homosalates or the, or yes, the other chemical ones. Yes, and, and look... It's, it's really hard to find product. I mean, I, I feel for everybody that is looking at a chemist or in a health food store or in a, in a beauty shop looking at all of these things and you look at the back and you need a chemical engineer's degree to actually be able to understand what's in it. So it's one of those things that less is more, I think, in my view. Finally. For those mums out there feeling worried or overwhelmed at the idea of reducing exposure, what is the simplest first step they can take to reducing their family's exposure to EDCs? Get rid of the plastic bottles, replace plastic with glass where you can. Catherine Samaras, thank you so much. You're welcome. Now, my neck, what do you think? Show me, show me, show me. Healthy Her was presented by me, Amelia Phillips, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matalov. Sound production by Matt Nicklich. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au. Download the free Podcast One Australia app or search Healthy Her. And for more tips and insights on this topic, visit my show notes at ameliaphillips.com.au. If you like my podcast or think other mums might find it helpful, please spread the word by sharing a link to your network of fellow mums. And feel free to drop me a line on Instagram anytime. I'd love to hear from you.